join us for the TVO Telethon, March 23rd and 24th, and donate early for a chance at great prizes. Visit telethon.tvo.org for more information. Welcome, everyone, to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. We're on every weekday during this 43rd Ontario election campaign. Today, on the pod, it's debate day in Ontario. For the first time ever, the official province-wide leaders' debate will feature four leaders. We'll get you set up for the showdown that may or may not alter the course of this campaign. We'll look at some past memorable leaders' debate moments, and we'll get you the skinny on the NDP's now fully-costed platform, which was announced yesterday. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022, day 13 of the campaign, so let's get to it. JMN, this is the day on the political calendar that all the leaders both look forward to, and if we're being a little bit honest, they also dread. If there's one moment in any campaign where many, many more voters tend to tune in, it's the leaders' debate. It starts at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time for 90 minutes, and it can be seen on TVO. We at TVO will also host the debate in our William G. Davis studio, named, of course, after Ontario's 18th Premier. Let's set the scene for what's at stake and go through what each leader's mission is. What do you think Doug Ford has to do tonight? Uh, well, honestly, job one for PC leader Doug Ford is probably not to do any real self-harm. Uh, he and his party are comfortably ahead in the polls, and if they can ride their current position to Election Day, uh, they probably have a majority in the legislature, though the margin, I think, would still be uncertain. Uh, one opportunity for him tonight that I, I don't think we've seen the Tories really uh, hammer home so far in the campaign uh, would be to really tie the various bits and pieces that uh, were in the Ontario budget for 2022, uh, tie those together and make the case for what uh, the Tories see as Ontario's post-pandemic future. Uh, I, I do think there's a narrative they could tell there. I don't think that they have uh, done it yet, and I'm not, frankly, going to do it for them. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know, honestly, if that is um, actually in Doug Ford's sort of political skill set. Uh, but by the same token, I think he could uh, surprise and perhaps impress some viewers if he was able to do so on stage tonight. And how about NDP leader Andrea Horvath, for whom this will be her fourth province-wide leaders debate? Uh, she really needs to make the case tonight for why the NDP are the credible opposition to the Tories and uh, why uh, people who are frustrated with the, the progressive conservatives need to vote Team Orange this time around. Um, it's not clear from the polls currently that voters are really interested in returning the NDP, uh, even to their current status as the official opposition, uh, much less to government. And this is one of the only chances she's going to get in this campaign uh, to, uh, as you say, make that pitch to as many voters as she's going to be able to tonight. Um, if the NDP numbers don't start climbing quickly, and we talked about this on Friday's episode, uh, Horvath could be out of a job shortly after polls close on June 2nd. Yeah, I just remind everybody that in the last election campaign four years ago, there was an official media consortium debate, which happened uh, you know, many, many days into the campaign. But before the writ period actually started, City TV hosted an all-leaders debate, and Andrea Horvath won that one hands down. Uh, she impressed everybody a lot, and in fact had her party in first place in the polls shortly after that debate. So we know she's capable of it. It's just a question of whether the, you know, whether the dynamic is the same and whether she can do it this time. Now, first province-wide election debate for Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader. What do you think his mission is? 
I don't actually know if I'm right about this, but I think the debate is likely to mark the end of what I'm calling uh, Del Duca's debutante phase of the campaign. Uh, you know, this is where uh, he is going to get his name and face out to most of the voters in Ontario, uh, tell them what he's proposing as part of his positive agenda. But then there's still weeks left in the campaign after the cameras turn off tonight. And I think after uh, the deb debate ends and after the leaders all scrum after the debates, uh, I think you're going to see all parties, but especially the Liberals, uh, take a more negative tack on the Tory record than they have so far. Uh, up until now, all three opposition parties have been largely preoccupied with getting their own proposals out, getting their own messages out, their own platforms, trying to, you know, uh, really uh, make voters see them positively. Uh, but I, I think the, the next phase is going to be making voters see the government negatively, and I expect we'll see that come pretty soon. Can I just compliment you on the way you started that answer by saying, I don't know if I'm right about this. <laughs> that demonstrates a level of humility we often don't see in media, which frankly, um, most of the time are too arrogant in their certainty about what they think and believe. So uh, I tip my hat to you, sir. Well, you know, I have always said that uh, the only thing I can bring to our audience, whether they are reading me online or listening to this podcast, is my judgment. And sometimes that means admitting when I actually don't know as much as I'd like to. <laughs> Love that. Thank you. Uh, last leader on the stage tonight, Mike Schreiner. Again, first time on the big stage. What do you think he needs to do? You know, Mike Schreiner is self-aware enough that he knows he's not going to be premier at the end of all of this. Uh, so uh, he can afford to be a bit uh, above the fray if he wants. Um, uh, I think there's a dynamic in federal leaders' elections where in the English language debate, the Bloc Québécois leader is sort of there for appearances sake and always tends to have a lot of fun because the English language debate doesn't really matter as much to him. Um, and, you know, you could imagine Schreiner uh, perhaps taking that attitude, but I, I don't think that's what's going to happen here. If you look at the performance in the Northern uh, debate that was uh, last week, uh, he was really willing to take on uh, both the government and his, uh, let's call them colleagues from the opposition parties. Uh, you know, he, he's obviously going to be happy to get his name and his face and his party's brand in front of voters uh, as Del Duca is. Uh, but you're also going to hear him name check some of the candidates in ridings that they are uh, feeling most aggressive about. Don't be surprised if you hear Diane Sachs's name. She's the Green candidate in University Rosedale. Um, and uh, Matt Richter in Perry Sound, Muskoka. I suspect we might hear both of their names tonight. Now, let me, while I'm in a compliment-giving mood, give you another one, because I did watch Stephen Del Duca's news conference this morning, uh, in which you asked him, since the Liberals are not running a candidate in Perry Sound, Muskoka, would you urge them to vote Green? And he said there was no real formal conversations that took place around all this, but I wonder whether you think not having a Liberal in that race does help the Greens, in fact, to run a more competitive race this time around. Well, the precedent here, and this is why I asked Del Duca about this, is in last year's federal election in Kitchener Center, uh, the Liberals had to uh, disown their candidate, for lack of a better word. Um, and what you saw was not uh, uh, any movement from the National Party to, to formally say, okay, vote Green this time, but a number of local uh, liberal, uh, either, you know, uh, uh, local elected officials or former party candidates, uh, you saw them endorse uh, Mike Morris, the Green candidate, who uh, ended up prevailing and is now a Green MP. Uh, so uh, there is no, you know, formal direction from Stephen Del Duca to uh, vote for uh, Matt Richter in Perry Sound, Muskoka. But uh, I would be surprised if a lot of liberals were not 
thinking along those lines. Uh, Matt Richter, I, I believe, came in second in the last election. It's a riding that the Greens feel uh, very confident about, at least, you know, making a good fighting show. Uh, the Liberals were probably not going to win it anyway, so a Green candidate might be the only way to, to plausibly uh, deny the Tories a seat uh, in that riding. And I, I will say, even then, it's going to be a stretch, but a Green is going to be probably their best chance. Well, I was going to say, he did finish second, but it was a very distant second. The <laughs> yes. progressive conservatives, that's one of their safest seats. They got more than 50% of the vote. I think Matt Richter got something like 23% of the vote in that election last time around, so it wasn't particularly close. Now, how about the dynamics? You know, you watch the debate to look for the good lines and the singers and to get a better take on the candidates and their messages and their platforms, but there are also sort of subplots or dynamics that people often look for as well. What should we look for? You know, I think there's basically going to be two different uh, themes, two different narratives going on. Uh, the first, uh, not surprisingly, is going to be everybody against Ford. Uh, this is the traditional dynamic, you know, the incumbent always has to defend their record. And we have multiple opposition parties uh, in uh, Ontario. So there will be uh, just, you know, Dalton McGinty could have said the same thing. Kathleen Wynne could have said the same thing. They are going to be defending on multiple fronts. But the other thing that will be happening is, uh, and we, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, uh, Andrew Horvath and Stephen Del Duca really going to be trying to uh, one-up the other, outshine the other to uh, cement in voters' minds that they are the only alternative uh, to a, a re-elected PC government. And we should also point out that I've received a number of complaints from supporters of the new party called the New Blue Party. That is the conservative alternative that Jim and Belinda Carajalio started up a couple of years ago. And these people have emailed me asking, why aren't the New Blue, uh, why isn't the New Blue leader permitted to participate in the leaders' debate, given that the party is running a full slate of 124 candidates, and there was a New Blue MPP in the last House, that was Belinda Carajalios in Cambridge, so, um, I mean, I emailed all the people back who've asked me that, but uh, for those who are wondering the same thing and listening to this podcast, what's the explanation for why there are only four and not five leaders on the stage? Uh, the rule that the consortium has is that it is not enough to have an MPP in the House. Uh, there must also have been an MPP elected to the House under that party's banner. Uh, so Belinda Carajalios was not elected as a new blue MPP. She was elected as a progressive conservative. Uh, this is a rule that... Uh, you know, fair or not, it has also been applied in previous uh, elections. Uh, it was used against the Green Party federally for several election cycles before uh, Elizabeth May uh, won a seat uh, in her own right. So, uh, you know, this is uh, this is not a new rule that we ginned up to to deny the New Blue Party uh, a seat at the table or a podium in the room. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's not a new rule, and and as many people who've emailed me have pointed out, it's completely arbitrary. And I say, yes, you're right, it is. It's a completely arbitrary threshold that uh, the media consortium representatives in their wisdom established because, after all, there are 30 political parties officially sanctioned by Elections Ontario to run in this election campaign, and we can't very well have a leaders' debate with all 30 of them up there. So you've got to create some kind of threshold that the parties have to pass uh, or else they can't participate. And this happens to be the threshold they've come up with. And, uh, look, honorable people can disagree about where to put that threshold where the line should be drawn but um, that's where it is and and I can imagine how miffed the Greens would be if suddenly 
a new threshold were put in place this time around because that threshold has always prohibited them from taking part in previous debates. And if suddenly they change the threshold to allow a new candidate in, well, the Greens would be saying, hey, come on now. We had to jump over this hoop. How about, how about these guys? So there we go. Now, in previous leaders' debates, we want to go back and just, because um, this is always fun to look back at history. Can you recall any moments from previous leaders' debates that really stayed with you over the years? You know, the 2018 uh, leaders' debate uh, doesn't actually seem like that long ago anymore. Um, I think there were two moments. Uh, I think the first memorably was uh, Doug Ford asking Kathleen Wynne, uh, you know, uh, effectively, you know, what happened to you? You know, I, I want to sort of jokingly say, you know, you used to be cool. Um, <laughs> and, and that seemed to uh, rattle the uh, liberal leader. And uh, she, she addressed it. Uh, I believe that was in the city uh, debate that you mentioned earlier. Uh, she then would address it in the legislature uh, in a speech uh, the next day. It was it a was, uh, it clearly stuck with her, and it has stuck with me since. Uh, but the other one was, uh, you know, Kathleen Wynne um, confronting Andrew Horvath on the uh, the, the strike among uh, education workers at York University. Uh, here is a, a clip of uh, what she said back in 2018. Um, Andrea, you've promised never to use back-to-work legislation with the public sector union. And I just want to know if you've really thought that through, because what it means is that unions would know that there is no way that you can ever say no. They can go on strike until they get absolutely everything that they've asked for. And this isn't an abstract issue. The NDP blocked legislation that would have returned York students to class weeks ago. Difficult negotiations are going on right now with uh, nuclear power workers. So you would put Ontario permanently on strike, or you'd empty the public purse to pay off huge union demands. So why would you put public sector unions first and the people of this province second? And, you know, this uh, attack on the NDP really uh, was part of the liberal effort throughout the campaign. So, I mean, a, a really strong attack against the NDP. And, you know, it, it really it was part of the narrative they used for the rest of the campaign. Uh, how about you, Steve? Well, just before I, I tell you mine, I, th this is a great example of how Kathleen Wynne struck a very good um, made a very good point on behalf of her team against Andrea Horvath. And it had Horvath on her heels. Wynn did not benefit from it. Ford benefited from it. And this is the interesting thing about these moments in the debate. Sometimes you can get the good shot in, but you don't necessarily reap the rewards from it. And that is part of the unfairness of politics. Uh, in my memory banks, I'm going to go back even further. I'm going to go back to 1995 and Mike Harris, the then leader of the PC party. This is the plan. Well, fair. I will hold it it's up. It's not fair not and to And the reason why we put it out a year ago was so that people could judge it. Not liberal economists or PC economists. You. Now, not too many people knew Harris at this point. Remember, he became leader in 1990, and uh, literally a couple of months after winning the leadership, he was thrust into an election campaign and came third, and therefore did not get a lot of attention uh, over the ensuing five years. But when he showed up for the leaders' debate, uh, many people were meeting him for the first time, and he looked calm, he looked steady. Uh, you know, he may have been the third-place candidate, but he just looked like he really... He looked like he knew what he was doing, and he kept holding up that copy of the Common Sense Revolution in his hands and saying, here's my plan, and, and you know, all, all the things that you're raising, they're right here in my plan. And John Michael, we've heard situations where a debate will happen, and then overnight, the polls will change. I remember talking to a pollster that night, and the polls didn't change overnight. The polls changed while the debate was taking place. 
The pollster was tracking public opinion, and he could see over the course of the debate that the liberals under Lynn McLeod, who had a 20-point lead in that election going into it, that lead eroded during the course of the debate. The NDP's Bob Ray was not a factor uh, in that election campaign, and Harris's numbers jumped up. And then I would add to the list uh, Dalton McGinty, who, um, like Andrea Horvath, uh, did four uh, leaders' debates province-wide. He's, uh, during the course of the campaign, he said that he called Canadian citizens foreigners. So hold on I've a got second a here. No, Dalton, you know I've that's not. You know that's not. Mr. McGinty had either the good or terrible fortune of participating in 1999, 2003, 2007, 2011. And i got to be honest, he never seemed like he really loved doing them. <laughs> and I remember I was moderating the 2011 debate. So after his fourth debate, after it was over, I remember going up to him and saying, this must be getting easier for you by now, right? And he looked at me like I was nuts, and he said, yeah, sure. As in, Haken, how stupid are you? <laughs> no, <laughs> these are not any easier this time. And if I can throw one more in, I would add the 1985 leaders' debate, and people are scratching their heads right now saying, 85, 85, there was no leaders' debate in 85. Right, that's my point. Frank Miller was the leader of the PCs. He made a big mistake by saying that he would not debate. There actually had not been debates in the previous two elections, so Miller thought he could get away with it. But the fact is the yardsticks had moved. There was an expectation among the public that leaders' debates were now part of the process. Um, federally, they had happened. Uh, in the United States, they had happened for president. And so Frank Miller made a real serious miscalculation uh, by not agreeing to a leaders' debate that he probably would have done perfectly well in. He was always very good on his feet. Um, and the fact that he didn't have a debate made him look like he was scared of the opposition. And, of course, the PCs went on to lose that election and the end of the 42-year-long Tory dynasty. I am so proud uh, to be releasing our fully costed platform, which truly reflects the priorities of Ontarians. That clip belongs to Catherine Fife, who served as the NDP finance critic in the last House, and she is now the party's candidate in the riding of Waterloo. She was presenting the party's full platform costing this past Sunday, yesterday. This makes the NDP the last major party to do so. Leader Andrea Horvath said her party was waiting to work the provincial budget's numbers into her own party's costing before making it public. That having now been accomplished, JMM. Was it worth the wait? <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, the NDP's reliance on the budget numbers has uh, shaped the costing in at least one way that's distinct from the other opposition parties. The NDP have provided a costing of their platform for three years, while the Greens and Liberals estimated their costs over the full four years of the next legislature. I mean, I guess we say four years of the next legislature if there's a majority. Minorities make things more uh, unpredictable. Uh, the, the difference here is that the NDP are building their costing off of the medium-term outlook that was included in the provincial budget, which only looks three years ahead. So in that sense, you can say that the NDP are matching uh, the Tories, but not the Liberals and Greens. Uh, the NDP are proposing some relatively larger spending in those three years, uh, $6 billion more next year and $5.4 billion the year after, uh, leaving a $13 billion deficit in 2023. Uh, I believe that's the largest uh, deficit that any of the opposition parties are proposing relative to the government. Uh, NDP staff uh, say that the party would would expect to be on the path to balance the budget by early in a second mandate. 
Now, there are always, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses in waiting this long to release your full costing. You know, on the one hand, uh, you look like a bit of a Johnny-come-lately compared to the other parties. On the other hand, you know, you can wait longer to get more up-to-date financial information, and therefore your numbers might be more accurate than the other parties. Uh, what it has enabled the NDP to do is update their promises, particularly on the Ontario Disability Support Program and Ontario Works. Those, of course, are the two major income support programs for the particularly vulnerable populations among us. Update us, if you would, on what the NDP is pitching on that. We mentioned on the podcast last week that at the time, uh, only the Green Party was proposing to increase the rates for OW and ODSP to above the inflation-adjusted level that they were uh, before the Tories won in 1995. Uh, those those rates have obviously, they were cut under the Mike Harris Tories and have only been raised incrementally since. Uh, that got a bit of traction on uh, social media before uh, we mentioned on the, on the podcast, I don't want to take too much credit for it, uh, but the, the, uh, the facts got a lot of traction on social media, the NDP seemed to have reacted to some of the pressure they were getting. So uh, Andrew Horvath announced on Saturday that the NDP would double both OW and ODSP rates in their second year in power and index them to inflation thereafter. Now, you did mention the NDP would increase deficits uh, to help pay for some of these new programs, but they're also going to do some taxation measures as well. What have they got in mind? Uh, like the other uh, opposition parties, they are proposing to reallocate the contingency funds the government reported in the 2022 budget, which uh, the Auditor General described as overly conservative and uh, out of whack with historical precedents. Uh, but the NDP are also proposing some new taxes. Uh, personal income taxes and corporate income taxes would both go up for uh, the wealthiest individuals and most profitable corporations, as the, the party describes them. Uh, the NDP are also proposing to raise the threshold of what currently gets counted as income from capital gains from 50 to 100 percent, but only for individuals with a net worth of over three million. Um, and uh, because some Toronto homeowners might uh, be worried about that number, I will say that the NDP are uh, retaining the uh, exemption in current law for uh, primary residences. So the value of your home would not get counted towards your net worth. Uh, they estimate that uh, that would raise about $2 billion in the third year. Uh, the NDP are also proposing to repeal the gas tax break that the legislature passed earlier this year with Tory and Liberal MPPs voting in favour. And then there's a new tax on luxury cars, which has some funny details. Well, funny to me anyway. Now, when McGrath says funny to me, that probably means not so funny to the rest of the province, maybe nerdy to the rest of the province. But okay, fill in the blanks. What are you saying? Well, if not nerdy, it's at least arcane. Uh, the NDP are proposing a surtax on luxury vehicles. Uh, cars that have a price of ninety dollars to $100,000 would pay a 5% tax, and cars over $100,000 would pay a 7% uh, surtax. But the NDP clarified they are exempting high-end electric vehicles from this surtax. Uh, they project this would raise about $49 million. Now, you might also recall that the NDP are promising subsidies for electric vehicle purchases, but those will not apply to what they called luxury EVs. And the NDP say that that definition would match the current federal program, which is cars less than 55,000 and SUVs or minivans up to 60,000. So, a luxury gas-powered car, according to the NDP, is something that costs more than $90,000, but a luxury EV is one that costs as little as $55,000. I mean, obviously, there's a difference between when the government is collecting taxes and when the government is spending public money, uh, especially to subsidize uh, people's personal uh, household purchases. Uh, but it was a little distinction that amused me. 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the difference between Jerry Seinfeld humor and John Michael McGrath humor. <laughs> right there. Right there. <laughs> Doing podcasts about cars. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's finish up with a comment we got from somebody named Ian Van Harten. He's a 32-year-old web developer from Guelph, and Ian's been listening to the podcast, and he wanted to comment on the candidate vetting process, which you and I have talked about, John Michael, uh, over the last several days, because the Liberals lost three candidates on three straight days last week because those candidates had said or written something stupid in the past. And here's what Ian has to say. Ian wrote... People running for office should be held to a higher standard of accountability, and for sure, some of the things that have been dug up are legitimately disqualifying. However, in other cases, these so-called scandals are not scandalous at all. The people digging up and releasing these stories probably think it's a winning strategy for them in the short term, but I'd say they do so without any foresight into the damage they're doing to everyone in the long term. No one is going to want to run for office anymore if they see that anything they've done in the past could be used to embarrass or discredit them, including something they may have written as a student for a student newspaper or stupidly tweeted when they were a teenager. Weaponizing these types of scandals is doing the exact opposite. Ian Van Harten from Guelph. Well, what do you think of that? Well, I, I would say two things. First, uh, the other effect is that the only people who will go into elected office are people, uh, let's say the kind of people who knew that they wanted to be elected officials from the time they were 12 and have, you know, done absolutely nothing else interesting in their lives except prepare themselves for elected office. Um, so that would be one drawback. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I fundamentally, I think I agree, uh, you know, I, I can't remember which pundit said it first, but, you know, it's been around a few times that, you know, if we disqualify everyone who uses a profanity or slurs uh, when they were 13 years old on Twitter mouthing off, if we disqualify those people in advance from running for office, you are going to just eviscerate the potential candidate pool. Uh, and I, I think democracy would suffer. That's not to excuse uh, every single possible youthful indiscretion or, or uh, offensive uh, conduct. But uh, I do agree that some of the stuff that's been dug up in the last few weeks probably should not necessarily have been as disqualifying as it has turned out to be. Well said. And that is the On Poly podcast for Debate Day, Day 13. A reminder, we're here every weekday during this 43rd general election campaign, right through to Election Day, June the 2nd. JMM will be back tomorrow with some post-debate analysis. Uh, I think Sabrina Nanji's pinch-hitting for you tomorrow because uh, you're taking off on me. Is that right? Uh, yes. If uh, everything comes together, I will be on the road tomorrow, uh, and I will uh, get to update our listeners with that later in the week. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll see you on the hustings. See you later in the week. <laughs>